a big belief of ours is that natural gas is going to remain relatively cheap. Electricity is going to remain relatively expensive. And if you look at different energy transition technologies, a lot of the core assumption in there is that electricity is going to be so cheap, nearly free, that you're going to be able to do things that are really uphill thermodynamically, like e-fuels, for example. And so we're a little bit contrarian, I think, to a lot of the other sort of entities that are looking at 45V, where we're saying, hey, we don't really use electricity. We want to figure out how to take a tanker full of LNG or a natural gas pipeline, get the most hydrogen with the lowest CO2 emissions, and do that without having to rely on you know, wind or solar capacity nearby. Welcome to the Entrepreneurs for Impact podcast. My name is Chris Wedding. As a former environmental private equity investor, four times founder, climate tech CEO, coach, and professor, I launched this podcast to share the entrepreneurial journey, practical tips, and hard-earned wisdom from CEOs and investors tackling climate change. And if you like what you hear, please leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. This is the number one way that listeners can learn more about the climate CEOs and investors I interview. And when you leave a review, please include your name and company. And I'll share one review before each episode to call a little attention to you and your company. Takes a village, folks. For this week, the review comes from Cochise111. Perhaps not a company name, but clearly a fan of the TV show Sabotage or perhaps the 1990s band Beastie Boys. Hopefully the latter. Great formatting guest. Each episode has a nice mix of Pleatech, self-improvement, inspiration, and humor. Dr. Wedding asks some great questions. He and his guests share unique insights and life stories. Highly recommended. Thank you, Coaches. Yep, I, listen, I learn a ton each week as I interview our guests. Remember to add your company in your name or reviews so I can also give you a call out as well. All right, let's get started. My guest today is Zach Jones, co-founder and CEO of C0. C0 converts natural gas into hydrogen and solid carbon. The hydrogen provides clean, low-cost energy on demand, while the carbon can be permanently sequestered. Investors include Breakthrough Energy Ventures, SK Gas, Mitsubishi Heavy Industries, and Angie. Zach is a biomedical engineer turned CEO with experience at The Economist, Beryllium Capital, Economedics, and East Meets West Foundation. In this episode, we talked about why natural gas is thermodynamically clean given its high hydrogen content. Showing that one for a second. Why big energy companies are motivated investors in this venture where a scaled up plant could cost $500 million. Power of extreme focus, the top three things a CEO must do well. By the way, can't do everything. How to think about upstream methane emissions, how to crack natural gas without electricity, the need to be a skeptical optimist, impacts of the federal 45B incentive, and a whole lot more. Hope you enjoyed and please give Zach and C0 a shout out on LinkedIn, Slack, or Twitter by sharing this podcast with your people. Zach Jones, co-founder and CEO of C0. 
Welcome to the podcast. Welcome. Great to be here. So let's see. Let's start with a fun kind of juxtaposition of two deep tech parts of your life. So going back a little bit, you were at our at one of our favorite places at Duke University, uh, studying biomedical engineering. But today, or maybe and today, uh, C zero uses something called thermal catalysis to do what you all do, which we'll get into in a bit. But maybe how do some of those tech uh, skills training you think transfer to where you are today with a very different kind of engineering or science? But still related, I think, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, Duke's biomedical engineering program was a really fantastic background in a number of different engineering disciplines, right? It's biomedical engineering is a little bit of electrical, a little bit of mechanical, a little bit of chemical engineering. And so I'm certainly not an expert in any one of those different fields, but being able to understand um, those different elements of uh, the pilot plant that we're building for our company when I have conversations with our technical team has really been invaluable. So even though what C0 is engaged in is probably most closely chemical engineering, I actually think it's been extremely advantageous to have a, a broader engineering background uh, coming into it because there's lots of different disciplines that gets touched when you build a pilot plant. Yeah, and I think one one takeaway is, you know, like the degrees that we that we earn and or the expertise we have in our first job or two or ten is not the end, right? This 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 is a process of continually learning, yeah, new stuff. Yeah, yeah, and it's it engineering is really it's a way of thinking about problems, and you know, I'm extremely grateful to the professors that I had at at Duke in the biomedical engineering program for teaching, you know, not the subject matter of biomedical engineering, but how to think about engineering problems and how to approach something and break it down into smaller pieces that can be managed. Um, and that's just been extremely valuable. Well, I, I hope if I flash forward X number of years, some of my Duke students will be guests on my podcast <laughs> saying such things about my classes. Anyway, you also went from not directly, but biomedical engineering some steps later to managing capital at Beryllium Capital. How did you make that jump from engineering to capital? So after I got my undergrad degree at Duke, I started and sold a medical device company, uh, didn't make a whole lot of money at it and said, you know, uh, climate change is going to be really interesting area to be in. At some point, the world's going to have to care about CO2. What's the sort of classic way to go change what industry you're in is to go get an MBA. And so I found my way into a small private equity firm after getting my MBA. And while I was there, I uh, had a thesis on hydrogen. Um, and so I spent kind of the mid-2010s looking at a number of different uh, hydrogen production technologies, business models, et cetera. Um, and that's actually what led to the creation of C0 when I read uh, my co-founder's paper in science on our technology. So kind of a, a long evolution that was uh, catalyzed maybe by an MBA. Well, I think listeners will appreciate your verb choice just there, right? <laughs> catalysis, catalysis everywhere. I will note for listeners that you chose not to reference where you got your MBA. I mean, I know Stanford's not quite as good as Duke, but we'll take it. Okay. <laughs> Decent school, decent school. 
So you you referenced that you read a paper by your co-founder in a major scientific academic journal, and that was your that was the seed. So I I love these models where a non-technical person that's actually that's not true. You are technical and you are non-technical. But the, the combo, let's say, let's pretend, let's just let's suspend for a second your full bio. Let's just take your your business portion combining with the tech person to launch something, which which really requires both skill sets, both perspectives to um, to succeed. Walk us through the next steps. You read the paper, dot dot dot. Read the paper and cold called it. And uh, you know, is Eric McFarland, his name, Dr. Eric McFarland, was, you know, excited to have somebody uh with a kind of finance background interested in in funding the technology or or the development. And uh I flew down to Santa Barbara a couple of times, which is where he's uh, located. He's a professor at UC Santa Barbara, and uh said this is this is really interesting. And uh, you've got a tremendous track record in technology commercialization. In the 2000s, he took a gas to liquids technology from his lab at UC Santa Barbara through building a $50 million pilot with Shell and Exxon uh, in the 2010s. He built a 50,000 ton per year ethyl acetate plant that was based on some of his research. So he said, you've got a great background, but there's no management team, and nor would they expect one to be in place. It's just a paper in science. Right. Um, but he and I hit it off. And you know, after my fourth trip to Santa Barbara, he said, well, you know more about this space than any half engineer, half finance guy I've ever met. Why don't you leave your firm and we'll come start a company together in this space? Um, and so that was really the genesis of C0. I love it. It's like you, you've showed it in my office four times. This could be 10 times if I don't just make a decision here. Go build a company, buddy. Or let's build a company together, shall I say. Yeah. 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 So we've we've danced around it, but uh, what's the pitch? What's the what's the short version before we get into the, the details of C zero? Yeah, sure. So we have a technology that removes the carbon from natural gas as a solid, so that you can continue to use natural gas for all the applications that it's used for today: process heat, electrical generation, um, et cetera. But instead of having CO two as a byproduct. You've got solid carbon, which is much denser and easier to sequester. Well, I'm I'm hooked. I'm sold, uh, Zach. So, how about the steps from the paper you read to maybe where you are today? What what were some of those additional milestones necessary to be achieved before arriving at? I believe your pilot project is in in Texas. Is that right? Correct. The pilot plant is in Texas. Yeah. Well, I think the most the most important milestone that we had to achieve early in the company was convincing everyone that this was a good idea. And even as recently as the beginning of 2020, there was not a consensus that there would ever be a willingness to pay a premium to avoid making CO2. And so, you know, what our process effectively does is crack natural gas, which is primarily methane into hydrogen and solid carbon. And what we heard from most investors that we pitched in 2018 and 2019 was that, hey, no one's ever going to pay a premium to avoid making CO2. You guys need to figure out how to get value for your solid carbon. Otherwise, you're just going to have uh, more expensive hydrogen, which is, of course, what's left behind when you crack up hydrocarbon made of hydrogen and carbon. Uh, you crack that into those two different things, you're left with hydrogen. You're just going to have more expensive hydrogen that nobody's ever going to buy. Um, and so you need to really focus on making 
carbon nanotubes or graphene or some other, you know, very valuable type of carbon. And Eric and I were very aligned in pretty basic fact that those markets are three, four orders of magnitude smaller than the hydrogen market. And what we really wanted to do was develop a technology and build a company that could actually move the needle on climate change. And so if you take that approach, what that means is you're going to make so much carbon coming out of this process that it's going to have to go back in the ground. There are no markets that exist today that could consume that much solid carbon. And, you know, we stuck with our with our guns on that and, and said no to a lot of folks. A lot of folks said no to us before getting Breakthrough Energy Ventures involved. And once we had convinced the Breakthrough team that this was a good idea, things really started to accelerate for us as part of, I'll call it the ESG wave. People realized that, hey, CO2 is a real problem. We're going to have to pay a premium to get rid of it. And uh, I think that was the first big milestone for us was focusing on the hydrogen and convincing everybody else that this was really an energy technology and not a carbon materials play. So with that said, you still are going to have solid carbon, which is still going to go in the ground somewhere. I presume it isn't like you need some you know, special well and, and reservoir and so forth, but you can clarify that. And will that allow you to earn some sort of you know, CDR credit in the process? Carbon yeah. renewable, I guess, yeah, unit or credit? Yeah. So there's a lot of different ways to think about the carbon. And I should say that we do have some very interesting applications that we're exploring with third parties that we can get some value for the carbon. It's actually pretty decently graphitic. And so using that as a precursor for synthetic graphite is very interesting. Also using it as an additive or bitumen and asphalt um, is also something that we're exploring with our investors. But the base case has to be that this is safe to sequester. And so we've got um, an unannounced partnership with one of the biggest utilities in the United States developing the protocol for sequestering the solid carbon. So there are definitely some ways to get value from it, but we need to make sure that our core value proposition, which is that sequestering solid carbon is going to be easier than you know concentrating CO2 from a dilute you know flue stack source, compressing that, putting it into a pipeline, moving it to a unique geological formation, and then monitoring it to make sure it doesn't leak. We have to make sure that our core value proposition of having solid carbon that you can put in the ground anywhere, that that, that really holds. Um, and so far, it looks very much like it will. In terms of the monetization of this, we think about it a couple of different ways. You know, We've been watching very closely the treasury rulings on 45V, which is the tax credit for producing hydrogen with lower carbon intensities. And so if you sort of draw a boundary around the plant and look at the amount of CO2 that's coming out of the plant, which is you know very, very low, it's basically negligible, getting a credit for that hydrogen that we're producing, uh, which is what's left behind, of course, when you crack the solid carbon out, is, is probably the primary way that we think of, of monetizing this. But there's also an opportunity to displace other sort of higher carbon intensity forms of carbon as well. So lots of different ways to monetize. So in partial summary, the base case is it's sequestered. It's it's buried of some sort, right? That's where you, it's, we, uh, it's a coal mine in reverse. If we're, if we're successful yeah. 
25 years from now, everyone will say, oh, can you believe those old days when they used to just let the carbon go into the atmosphere? Now there's coal mines running backwards, putting solid carbon in the ground. Yeah. Now that that's a good marketing right there, Zach. <laughs> it wasn't your first whiteboard session, I'm guessing. Um, but, but that's a base case. But the more optimal scenarios, which again, you're not underwriting to a precursor to graphite. I mean, that's, that's maybe extra interesting because graphite has its own kind of benefits in the energy transition, yeah? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, it, it, not just in batteries. There's uh, another breakthrough energy portfolio company, Antora Energy, that is using graphite for thermal storage. So it's, it's very exciting, but it's also developing materials can be a very, very all-consuming process where as you're making process design decisions, you kind of look at this and say, well, gosh, this this graphite market is worth so much more than the hydrogen. And you start to make tweaks that sort of move the focus from the hydrogen to the carbon. So I've uh, worked with our team to be very clear that we're, we're going to get the hydrogen piece first. We've got a lot of exciting things to do with the carbon, and we can go work with third parties to go do that. But that uh, the goal of this is to do things at a scale that can impact climate change. And at that scale, it's going to be all about the hydrogen. So it's kind of a, a constant need to stay focused on what the real core mission of what we're trying to do is. And I'll note for readers, I'm sorry, listeners rather, this is not my newsletter, for listeners that uh, today is January 5th. So I'll, with that context, I'll ask you this question, which maybe the answers will change when this gets published. But you talked about 45, I think it's V, right? with this massive potential support for lower carbon hydrogen, it's also not straightforward. And so there's kind of, there's some uncertainty around how that's interpreted or the rules come forth. And some, some of the, let's say, green hydrogen players that are very hopeful may have different hopes if, if things work one way, you know, large oil and gas majors, some perhaps the exact opposite. But anyway, maybe just lay out the scene for how this could play out and who wins and loses, you all included, but but a broader ecosystem of lower carbon hydrogen players. Well, at a high level, I think I've been pretty pleased with the way that you know 45V is being fleshed out. It's all been pretty rational and based in a technology neutral approach to, hey, hydrogen would be a great thing to use as a decarbonization vector, you know. Free markets, startups, et cetera, go figure out how to make it with a lower carbon footprint than it's made today. I think the thing that's really unique about our approach to hydrogen production, and this really flows into another kind of core belief that uh, Eric and I had, is that we don't use very much electricity. The, the electrical input into our process is basically negligible. And I think that. A big belief of ours is that natural gas is going to remain relatively cheap. Electricity is going to remain relatively expensive. And if you look at different energy transition technologies, a lot of the core assumption in there is that electricity is going to be so cheap, nearly free, that you're going to be able to do things that are really uphill thermodynamically, like e-fuels, for example. And so... We're a little bit contrarian, I think, to a lot of the other 
sort of entities that are looking at 45V, where we're saying, hey, we don't really use electricity. We want to figure out how to take a tanker full of LNG or a natural gas pipeline, get the most hydrogen with the lowest CO2 emissions, and do that without having to rely on you know, wind or solar capacity nearby. And so that market is, you know, Korea, Japan, large parts of Southeast Asia, higher latitudes in North America and Europe, but also places where, you know, sure, you might have renewables 50 miles from where you need them, but you've got to go build a big electrical transmission infrastructure, or you have to uh, go build, you've got a CO2 pipeline 50 miles away. You've got to go cross all those different parcels of land in order to get over there. And so a secondary benefit of uh, having solid carbon and not needing electricity is that part of the pitch that we make is that we just need natural gas. So if you have some a railway by your power plant um, and you've got a natural gas pipeline, we can use the existing solid handling infrastructure. We can use the existing natural gas infrastructure and not sort of trigger these needs to go build huge transmission pathways for either CO2 or electrons that are going to cross a dozen different parcels and get held up in eminent domain fights and, and some of those battles. So to bring that back to 45, 45V, the thing that we're really looking for is how are upstream methane emissions going to be treated? And so our view is that there really hasn't been an incentive. If you're a natural gas producer or, or distributor, to address those, um, because there's never been a penalty for that. But uh, as some of the other provisions of the IRA have, Inflation Reduction Act, have created a you know basically a tax on fugitive methane emissions. We expect those to come down. And so, what we're really looking for in 45V is an ability to say, "Hey, I'm using call it responsibly sourced gas or whatever the terminology is at my facility that has a very low upstream methane emission footprint." And to make sure that that we can get credit for that, and so I think that provided that that's the case, we we feel pretty confident that we can get uh, at least into the second highest tier of the hydrogen production tax credit, which would give you a dollar per kilogram of hydrogen produced, which is uh, a pretty a pretty big tailwind for us. So I would say by and large we've been pleased uh, with the way it's unfolded. Well, that's a great summary. I do have one. Well. I have lots of questions, but one we'll start with is early on in this answer, you mentioned that your process does not require a lot of electricity. And I'm not a, chem a chemical engineer, but thinking about how you crack natural gas into the hydrogen and the solid carbon, what is the power that facilitates that, that transaction, if you will? Yeah. So the easiest way to think about it is we... Uh, effectively consume some of our product hydrogen ah, right. to, 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 drive, to power the process and, and drive it forward. And that was something that was a very deliberate design choice, even back in the whiteboard days, which is, you know, based on this thesis that natural gas is going to be around for a long time and remain relatively cheap. We need to make sure that we don't have electricity, which is a, you know, a pretty high grade source of energy going into this process in any significant quantities. And of course, chemical engineering 101 would tell you that you build a chemical plant, your outputs need to be more valuable than your inputs. If you have a lot of electricity that goes into your hydrogen production, it's pretty tough 
to turn around and use that hydrogen to generate electricity again, which is, of course, a big application for that people are thinking about hydrogen is to go repower existing, you know, simple and combined cycle turbines to generate electricity on on hydrogen. So you always want to be moving moving up in value of of the products that are produced by a plant with respect to the inputs. Yeah, that's really helpful. It makes a lot of sense intuitively now that you say it, right? You're kind of self-consuming a little bit to power the ongoing uh, cracking, if you will. I, I guess on the latter point, the tech or business models that use electricity to produce hydrogen to later produce electricity, kind of as the as the carrier, the storage vehicle. I'm not deep in that sector, but I, I, I suppose, and you can correct me, the play there is that they would use the renewable solar wind power when it, the, the marginal cost is, I'll just say, use a technical term, stupid cheap, right? Uh, way oversupplied, therefore it's way below what avoided cost would be. Therefore, there is some arbitrage there, but but help me out there. Is that true, not true? What do you... Have yeah, to- that's, that's true. But what's required for, I'll just call it, electricity to hydrogen back to electricity the only reason you would do that is just to match, you know, time of day. Um, so, you know, you've got to be able to store hydrogen in very large quantities so that you can make it when that renewable power is available and then turn it back into electrons um, when that renewable power is is not available. Um, and so the round trip efficiency on that is is not great. There's a lot of losses. That being said, in the right types of scenarios, you can store vast quantities of hydrogen very cheaply in salt domes. Um, and so that's done commercially on the Gulf Coast of the United States today. Uh, one of our investors, Mitsubishi Heavy Industries, um, developed a project in Utah that's doing that same thing. But you know, salt domes are kind of few and far between. That's not something that you can just go out back behind your power plants and expect to find. So I think it makes sense, but it's a very site-specific type of project where you really need storage in order for electricity to hydrogen back to electricity to make sense. Yeah, I don't know why I think this, but uh, you mentioned salt domes a number of times, and all I can picture is like some sort of Star Wars Tatooine landscape (laughs) required for for this storage mechanism. Let's go. You mentioned investors a couple of times. You mentioned Breakthrough Energy Ventures, our mutual friend uh, Eric Toon there. You mentioned Mitsubishi Heavy Industries, uh, easy for me to say. But I imagine, well, you, actually, you alluded to it. You didn't get yes from investors uh, instantly, which is usually the case. Maybe just describe to us the process for going from scientific paper to then refine your strategy and or pitch to get investors to say yes, and then maybe, maybe how you're learning from these investors to evolve your strategy to the next level. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I I remember very distinctly when we came up with the, I'll call it the the magic unlock on the pitch, which was a slide that just had a very simple pie chart that said, if you look at where the energy in natural gas comes from, 60% of it comes from the hydrogen, the hydro and the hydrocarbon, 40% of it comes from the carbon. And so thermodynamically, natural gas is mostly a zero emission fuel. And obviously, we talked to a lot of sophisticated investors who knew intuitively that, yeah, well, natural gas is almost entirely methane. That's, you know, four hydrogens and one carbon atom. But 
getting that energy, I'll call it ecosystem, to think about like, oh my gosh, most of what we're moving around is actually hydrogen. Um, it's actually, it has the potential to be zero emission, was just night and day for us. And so I think the the learning there was you can't develop a slide deck or a pitch in a vacuum. You can have the greatest graphics. You can, you know, whiteboard all sorts of different ways to communicate something. But what you really have to do is just have hundreds of conversations and throw things at the wall and then, you know, see like, wow, there was a great reaction to that way of pitching this concept. Let's move in in that direction. So it's really just, you know, huge numbers of, of conversations that I think led us to be able to start to get traction. Yeah. I mean, in, in so many ways, it's it's an experiment as well, right? The process of finding the right investor is an experiment. You see, you see what works. I often think about this expression that that uh, quantity leads to quality in terms of the capital raise, right? Many more conversations lead to the best investors that are the right fit for for your company. You've mentioned again a couple of times how you, you're getting value from the investors. I think sometimes I hear founders or CEOs talk about, yes, they want the capital from the investors, but boy, they don't want those investors too deep in the weeds, kind of telling, quote unquote, the the company what to do, which I think is pretty, obviously, there, there are those investors who perhaps you know, overstep or, or provide advice lacking the same expertise the company team has. But, but the better interpretation or the better scenario is, no, no, the investors have value to add, to add beyond the dollars. Maybe if you could give some examples of where you're seeing that additional value from, from your investors, whether it's advice or project, you know, pilot collaboration, let's say. Yeah, absolutely. And we deliberately set out to build a cap table that had a lot of strategic investors because, you know, if we're successful building one of our plants, a world scale hydrogen production plant, which is, you know, we would say is something over a hundred thousand tons per year of hydrogen. That's a, that's at least a half a billion dollars. And so you know, this is going to be very capital intensive. We're going to need a lot of deep pockets around the table. So let's make sure that we've got, you know, some big institutions invested. And additionally, institutions that all are sitting in different verticals. And I think we've done a really good job of that. And I I use the term vertical to mean a different application for our technology. So uh, Mitsubishi Heavy Industries that I mentioned you know, I was making a big push to make people aware that their turbines can run on, you know, high volumes of hydrogen, including going all the way up to 100%. So that's sort of a hydrogen to electricity play. The SK, second largest company in Korea, is another investor. Almost entirely, uh, I mean, Korea is almost entirely dependent on imports of, uh, of LNG and coal. And so some of the nuances of thinking about how do we make hydrogen in Korea as part of the LNG supply chain is is very unique. Traffigura is another investor, one of the world's largest physical commodities traders, you know, already very deep into the LNG business. They trade solid carbon in the form of petroleum coke, and they're looking at trading carbon credits. So really fantastic to be able to work with that team um, and understanding what they're seeing uh, evolving globally. And, you know, of course, thinking about something that going back to us talking about 45V and all of that sort of, 
I'll call it the uh, fog of war, for lack of a better term, of how that's going to unfold. It's great to be able to call up these big entities that have a lot more resources than we do and say, what are you guys hearing? What are you What are you guys seeing about you know how all this is going to take place? Um, and I'd put breakthrough in that camp as well. They're obviously you know very deep into the uh, into the, the the policy element of this too. And so being able to get the feedback from that team is really really helpful. Yeah, it makes makes a ton of sense. But first, there's a brief message from our sponsors. Just kidding. We still don't take any sponsors. <laughs> but did you know that 100,000 plus CEOs belong to CEO peer groups? And if that makes you feel a little FOMO, and if you're a CEO or founder, then you're in luck. I have the privilege of leading North America's top peer group community for growth stage CEOs, founders, and investors in climate tech, clean energy, and sustainability. Today's members are creating billions of dollars of market value and millions of tons of greenhouse gas reductions. With our monthly group meetings, annual retreats, and one-on-one executive coaching calls, our members help each other, most importantly, help each other boost revenue, impact, capital raise, clarity, confidence, work-life balance, and team effectiveness. If this sounds interesting, please go to entrepreneursforimpact.com and join the waiting list today. Let's switch from talking about C0 to talking about uh, Zach Jones here. So Zach, tell us one or two things you strongly believe in, ideally outside of work, as in like pre-C0, that are influencing, I don't know, why you started it, how you're building the team, kind of culture, et cetera? Well, I think one of the things that, uh, you know, Eric, that I believe that Eric also believes that we hit it off on is, you know, people and institutions are not stupid. They're pretty smart. And so anytime somebody comes up with a pitch that says, I have a better way of doing something that no one's ever thought of before, I'm highly skeptical of that, as is Eric. And I think that that's really kind of influenced the development of the company, even though you sort of asked to, to kind of keep it on a personal level, but the development of the company, because the reason that what we're doing is novel and doesn't kind of fail that criteria, why didn't anybody think of this before, is because the incentives have never been in place to develop this technology. In order for this idea to be good, you need two things to be true. You need to have cheap natural gas and you need to uh, care about CO2. And both of those things have only been true maybe the last five years, um, maybe a little longer, depending on how you want to think about it. And so that was kind of led me to think of this as a, this is a great opportunity because it isn't going to wind up being a better mousetrap. You know, a lot of ideas that come out of academia, particularly in the hydrocarbon space, are things that, you know, Exxon or Shell worked on 20 or 30 years ago. And they kind of worked on it and put it on a shelf somewhere. It's it's very rare that you can come up with a big breakthrough that nobody else has thought of. But uh, what was attractive to me is that this is kind of a blue ocean space. And so 
I think that's something that I, I definitely believe in is pretty rare to find just sort of a aha moments that no one else has thought of uh, without some other type of uh, extenuating market circumstances that now have said, hey, go look over here. And that hasn't been the case historically. I'm with you. How about if you're giving advice to emerging professionals, maybe you're you know, uh, speaking at a local university, who knows, maybe you're back in Durham speaking at Duke, or, or maybe you're talking to a younger Zach Jones. What are a couple of pieces of advice on how uh, those folks could build careers that are, look, more impactful, less stressful, that they're happier along this, this, uh, this journey, if you will? Sure. Well, I think one thing that I've done to reduce stress that I think is broadly applicable, not just to entrepreneurs and startups, but to anybody is really to kind of start my day with, you know, 30 minutes, wake up before the kids are up, have a cup of coffee and write down, what do I want to accomplish today? What are the top three things? And then to close that out at the end of the day and maybe put some notes down for what tomorrow is going to look like. And I think that uh, I think that's been very helpful for my kind of mentality, just because there's so many things there's there's so many things going on, and at least with our sort of company, there's so many exciting directions that you can go to. You can sort of you know end the day not feeling like you've accomplished anything, because there are just as many questions and things to explore at the end of the day as there were at the beginning of the day. So it's helpful to kind of set the intent and focus of. Okay, there's a lot of other sort of things out there that we could be working on. What am I going to do today? And to check back in to say, wow, I got six things done off that list. This was a successful day. So I think that would be a, a broad piece of, of advice. And then maybe something that's more specific from an entrepreneurial perspective is you're not a doer as the CEO of a startup. You need to be the coach. And, uh, you know, I had, I had heard that kind of lesson before. But there's no substitute for learning and living a lesson versus versus hearing it. And so, you know, understanding that your role as the CEO is is like like a coach. You've got players on the field who are sort of, you know, performing different different things. When you see somebody's not working in one position, you got to make a substitution. Maybe if you've got a problem, you've got to get somebody off the team. You've got to be recruiting all the time to get folks onto the team, you know. That's uh, one of the many things that Coach K was so good at was going out and recruiting the talent. So, I think that that's that's an analogy that I would hand to people: is you're not you're not a player as the CEO, you're the coach, and you know you're responsible for the success of the team, but not by getting out there and scoring a, a touchdown yourself or making the three pointer. You're responsible by getting everybody else to work together in the most coordinated fashion. Yeah, that that topic, that distinction of of a player versus coach comes up. Uh, all the time uh, in our our climate CEO peer group community, I think the, certainly the earlier you are in building the company, the harder it is, right, to just be a coach when you got to be a player as well. But that's the goal for sure: is to kind of work on the business, not in the business. Have a team you can depend on. That God forbid you could take vacation and not uh, things don't uh, things don't fall apart. You talked about the process of uh, getting up with the the cup of coffee before the kids are awake, writing a few things down as your goals for the day. It reminds me of the uh, the index card approach, right? Where it, all you can do for the day is is on your little index card folded and put in your, maybe your shirt pocket, 
it is some much longer list. It also makes me think about, you know, to-do lists can have lots of things on them, but it doesn't mean they're all created equal. Some can be far less important than others, even though they're at the bottom or top of the list. So I think what you what you do is you you pull the most important things from a, a much longer list to the front of your mind on paper uh, each day, which sounds as a you know like a good bit of focus at your efforts. Absolutely, and you know the broad categories that I think that very long list of to do items needs to be filtered through from a startup CEO's perspective is you only have three jobs, raise money, recruit, sell. And so as you go figure out out of the buckets of thousands of to-do items, that's the filter that I use is if it isn't, if a to-do item isn't in raise money, recruit, sell, it is a second tier item for sure. Um, And so constantly thinking about shifting the most important tasks forward and not getting bogged down. And is this really the most critical thing that I work on today has been obviously a, a constant sort of challenge and struggle, but I think developing a process to, to help manage that has been, has been very helpful to me. It's a great simplification of a very hard job. Three things, right? Yep. Raise money, find talent and, uh, and sell. Are there books or maybe podcasts, tools, quotes, et cetera, Zach, that you would encourage folks to pick up? I think one of my favorite authors is, uh, I'm, I'm probably going to butcher the pronunciation here, Václav Smil, spelled a little bit differently than that, and uh, would highly recommend uh, How the World Really Works as a book. Um, it's all talks about you know energy and energy transitions that have taken place historically and how even by the time that you realize that there's a new energy source out there, Historically, you're not even halfway through the consumption of the old energy source. You kind of need to use more of that to springboard yourself. So uh, he's been a, a, a tremendous influence. Um, and Zach, how do you spell his last name? I believe it's S-M-I-L. Okay. Just wanted to confirm for the for listeners. Yeah, S-M-I-L. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. All right. Yeah. And... Uh, you know, I also think it's important to, you can kind of get bogged down in the, the technical element of an energy transition technology. And maybe I'll also throw in there the political element too. But it's really important to think about energy transition from the perspective of the people that are going to finance it. And so one of the other things that I love to read every year is, uh, um, I think one of the, the head economists at JP Morgan, Michael Semblis, writes an annual energy paper. And has been doing it for, gosh, o- over a decade now. Um, and that's, I think you can download that from JP Morgan's website. But that's always really fantastic because you think about it from the perspective of, hey, I'm a bank or I'm a financier. What is required to go unlock the, you know, hundreds of billions, if not trillions of dollars of capital there and thinking about, how do you get your technology to be bankable so that you can go get debt on it, which is really the name of the game and obviously has been critical to the adoption of wind and solar. Um, so I think he's a he's a great uh, writer and thinker as well. Well, I, I wrote that one down uh, to both read and probably share in our, our weekly newsletter as well. So thanks for that, thanks for that tip. So Zach, parting, uh, parting, parting or closing words here, uh, any kind of call to action or the, the types of folks you want to hear from any stereotypes you want to bust? What's your what's your final kind of piece of advice here? 
piece, final piece of advice, I think, is maybe to always approach the conventional orthodoxy uh, with maybe a little bit of skepticism. You know, back to the comment I made about, well, why hasn't anybody done that before? Is uh, I think really important when thinking about energy transition technologies or claims about reducing capex of an existing technology by some dramatic amount. You know, what did the what are the guys that were building that already? What did they miss about sort of uh, capex that's going to allow you and your new idea to do that? So, I think being skeptical and also being um, skeptical with respect to timelines, and maybe the inverse of that is to say be patient, which is you know it took over a hundred years to go build up all this energy infrastructure. Some of the timelines in terms of getting things done by 2030, I think are, are going to be very unrealistic and uh, are going to result in when those deadlines blow past people feeling like we failed or, or like, you know, we missed the window on climate change. And I would disagree with that and think, you know, it's going to be a long process. It's going to extend into 2040s, 2050s. But all the little incremental improvements of avoiding CO2 matter. And so be patient. It's going to take lots of capital. It's going to take building, you know, world scale versions of energy transition technologies. But I think we can get there. Well, it sounds to me like your friends may describe you as a skeptical optimist, Zach. I think that's right. I think yeah, that's right. I'll take I think it. it's, a good, it's a good title to have. But, but, but both those are required uh, to be a good leader in this space. Hey, Zach, uh, I'm really excited about the technology. Love the origin story. Love the kind of dual expertise you all bring. And we're rooting for your all success, man. Okay. Thanks, Chris. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. And if you want more intel on climate tech, better habits, and deep work, then join the thousands of others who subscribe to our Substack newsletter at entrepreneursforimpact.com. Or drop me a note on LinkedIn. All right, that's all, y'all. Take care.